You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. We are, uh, we are continuing our study of 1 John. Uh, and again, I kind of came up with this too late to put it on any slides, but if I was going to call this uh, study through 1 John anything, I would call it Simple Truths, right? Uh, just because John doesn't... Uh, generally speaking, throughout this letter, he doesn't really crack our skulls with anything that we've probably never heard before, especially if you've been been a Christian for any amount of time. Uh, But John hits us with uh, old, simple truths uh, in a really hard-hitting, refreshing way, uh, because as the people of God, we need reminded of the simple truths all the time, uh, because we're apt to forget, because we're stupid and stubborn, right? That's why God repeats himself throughout the Bible so many times. Uh, So what we're doing is we're looking at John's warnings and reminders uh, and tests, and seeing how they apply to our lives. And this evening, uh, which is hilarious that there are as many of you here as there are, uh, we are addressing a topic that I have never preached on before. Uh, we're going to be talking about Antichrist. Uh, yeah, right? It's going to be fun. Um, so whenever people hear the word Antichrist, usually one of two things happens. Uh, they either tense up and get really nervous, right, and really scared, or they get way too excited, <laughs> Right? Does anyone know anyone, like, whenever you start talking about, like, end times, like, eschatology or antichrist or anything, people just get super jacked. Like, they start breaking out charts and stuff. They're like, let me show you everything that I know. Um, right? Like, anyone, who, who grew up with the Left Behind books? Who read them? Yes. Left Behind for Kids, remember that? Yes. Right? Yes and amen. Grew up with that. Uh, right? You can see us, uh, who is it? Um, what's his name? Hagee? Is that his name? John? Is it John Hagee? No, no, Tim LaHaye and Jenkins, no, don't mess with me. I know my Left Behind books. I'm talking about the crazy guy on television who has somehow consistently preached on nothing but revelation for like 40 years of ministry. I don't know how you do that, but that's what he's done. Uh, But yeah, you can see people get really pumped about this stuff. Uh, Everyone accuses every politician ever of being the Antichrist. Uh, If you Google Antichrist, you'll find pictures of like the last six presidents. And like, it's really, really funny. Like Hillary Clinton, I saw someone, not that she was a president, but like someone like redded her eyes out and put horns on her and it just had the beast under it. Which I did get a chuckle out of, regardless of your political affiliations. That's funny. Um, but anyhow, uh, right? But Hollywood, um, just on another note, Hollywood has really, really distorted uh, the biblical view of Antichrist. And sadly, uh, many people base all of their beliefs uh, about anything to do with the end times, anything to do with Antichrist, on what they've seen in films. Right, whether it be Nicolas Cage's recent just bomb with Left Behind or whatever, right? The 1970s film, me and Dustin were talking about it, Thief in the Night, right? That was good times. Um, not really. Why, why can't Christians make good films? Uh, anyway, whatever. Uh, <laughs> right, but people all often, they just take whatever they've seen in films and they make that their view on Antichrist or that their view on eschatology in general. Uh, but this evening, we're going to take a biblical view of the subject. Um, we're not going to go beyond what the text says about Antichrist. And you're going to find out, it's, again, it's, it's better to know this, but it's not nearly as entertaining as the films. It's really not. Um, and it's also not really that shocking to find out what Antichrist John is actually talking about whenever he uses the term Antichrist. Because this is really a doctrinal issue. Right? Really, that's the heart of this, is, is doctrine. Um, and what's sad is whenever we consider Antichrist doctrine, is that many people today are not fans of doctrine. Most people today don't like to study doctrine. They can't bear the hearing of sound doctrine. Um, I think reading the scriptures is boring. 
pouring hours into understanding a passage or reading uh, church fathers is boring and then they don't want to study sound doctrine. Uh, many preachers, actually I would argue most preachers, don't care about preaching sound doctrine. Uh, most preachers around here probably haven't heard of a systematic theology and don't know what that means. Um, but that's why sermons like this, and by the way, I'm not claiming to be the smartest man in the world, but most people don't like to study doctrine. And that's why sermons like this one are so important for us to hear. Right? Even if it's basic doctrine just about Jesus, so important for us to hear. Uh, so to give you guys a little bit of an outline of where we're going um, before I drop you in on context and then actually read the verse itself. Um, an outline, we're going to read where John says this is the last hour. And we're going to talk about what does that mean? What does John mean whenever he says we are in the last hour? It is the last hour. Two, we're going to go and check out what is Antichrist. Three, uh, we're going to look at the characteristics of Antichrist, right? What false doctrines. Uh, four, we're going to see why does true doctrine matter? Is this just an ivory tower theological debate that, that doesn't really apply uh, to regular people, or does this actually matter to us? Uh, just boots on the ground as Christians. And then lastly, we'll go into application where I will warn and encourage you in light of this text. Uh, so in context, right, because I don't like dropping you guys in and not know what's going on in the passage, uh, you guys will remember that John has written this letter, right, this whole letter. He's written it with the intention of, of letting the people know uh, what false teachers look like, because there was a split going on in the churches in Asia Minor. He's pointing out false teaching in the church, and he's also uh, he's wanting them to be able to spot heresy, spot false converts, spot false Christians. But he's also written this letter to encourage the true believers that are in these churches to persevere in the faith and stay true to the teachings that they had originally heard from the apostles and not turn from them. Right? He says, actually, uh, later on in the letter we're going to get to, he says, I write these things so that you may know that you're in the faith. And one of the ways we can know we're in the faith is if we hold true to the teachings of the apostles. Um, but in this section, and really the rest of chapter 2, John is pointing out some of the doctrines of the false teachers. Uh, they're, they're big doctrines. They're big, horrible doctrines that they taught. And in doing so, he shows us how to spot Antichrist. So with that being said, we're in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18. I see some people that are new here with us. If you don't have a Bible, take one of those Bibles and those pews home. Uh, the ESV is the one I would take home if I were you. There are two different translations back there. First um, John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Let's take a minute and pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word, uh, for the warnings that you give us, um, the exhortations you give us uh, to stay faithful. Holy Spirit, please uh, work through the preaching of your word today. If I say anything in error, please uh, let the people disregard it. Um, but God, the things that are true that I'm going to say, God, let them take root in our hearts that we might see Christ more fully and that we might be on guard against those who would seek to undermine the teaching of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit, please do a sovereign work here, because if you don't, then this is all in vain. We know your word doesn't go out void, Father. We know it will do all that you, have your, that you have willed it will do. So we trust that. Do your will, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so John starts out by telling us, children... It is the last hour. Now, some people try to take this too literally, as if John were talking about actual time. Right? Like, I've read some commentaries, read some people that say, John was convinced that Jesus Christ was going to return within his lifetime. 
Right? That's what some people, they read it a bit too literally and they think that that's what he's getting at. Uh, and in light of that, if you read it that way and think John's talking about time and that he thought that Christ was going to return within his lifetime, people will then often pose this argument. They'll say, John taught that the return was right around the corner. If that's what he's saying here, obviously the return wasn't right around the corner for John. Right? It's been 1,900 years since John wrote this letter. Um, so John was wrong. And therefore, the Bible is wrong because John claimed to be speaking on behalf of Jesus and John lied or John was mistaken. So therefore, we can't trust the Bible. Right? But that's not how we're supposed to read this text. Right? The Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. We know that that's not the right way to read it. But consider this. Whenever John says this is the last hour, it is the last hour, um, his use of last hour, which is actually unique to John, he's the only apostolic writer to actually put it that way, corresponds to other writings in the New Testament of a similar nature uh, that talk about the last days, right? And that's used through multiple writers throughout the New Testament. So think of it this way. Whenever John says it is the last hour, John has in mind the history of redemption, right? He has in mind the entire plan of salvation that that God had, had thought up before he did anything, before he created anything, the whole scope of the salvation plan, right? So think about it this way. Uh, So God, right, he makes the plan, and then he creates the world. The world falls into sin because of Adam and Eve, right? That's like phase two. And then God begins to promise himself in Genesis 3. He promises a Messiah. He promises a Savior born of the woman who would redeem his people. And then he keeps promising this Messiah throughout the prophets. And the people keep waiting for the Messiah. And then eventually, we get to the New Testament where Christ comes, Right? His life, his perfect life in place of sinners, his death in place of sinners, and his resurrection on behalf of sinners. Right? And then we move into another phase where Christ ascends to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Right? And then the people are sitting around waiting at Pentecost right, for the Holy Spirit to come. And the Spirit descends on, on the people of God at Pentecost. And now there's nothing left in the plan of salvation except the return of Christ. Right? God created, it fell, he promised the Messiah, he sent the Messiah, the, the Messiah promised the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit had came at Pentecost, what's left? The second coming, that's all that is left in the history of salvation. So John can say, we are now in the last hour. The apostolic writers can say, these are the last days, we are at the end. And it's really funny, it always makes me laugh whenever I see people post stuff on Facebook, because like, Whoever gets the presidency every four years, this is the end, right? They're like, get, get ready, guys. This is the end. We're living in the end times. It's like, yeah, and we have been for like 2,000 years. So like I've been, I've been prepared for it, right? Like we have been living at the end since Pentecost, right? Since that day. Uh, again, because there's nothing left in redemptive history except the return of Jesus. So that's what John means by it is the last hour. There is nothing left for us to look forward to in the history of salvation except for the return of Christ. That's actually a really cool thought for us. That's something that we should dwell on regularly. At any given moment, God could set in motion the events that are to immediately precede the return of Christ. That's awesome. We should live in expectation. We ought to live in light of that. And and furthermore, knowing that that we are at the end and there's no more waiting with the exception of we are waiting for Christ to return should be a great encouragement to us. We're very privileged to live in this time where we've received all the blessings of God's plan of salvation with the exception of Christ's return. Right, and in light of that, we should really pray along with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Right, we should pray for his return. We should, we should desire it. But again, we are indeed in the last hour. And John says, in verse 18, in that first line, John says that we can objectively know that this is the last hour. 
Right, the very last line, he says, therefore, we know that this is the last hour. Why? Because many antichrists have come. Right, many antichrists have come. That's how we know that this is the last hour. That's how we know that we're at the end. And I think if I can get inside John's head, um, this is how that, that, that statement makes sense. Uh, if the true Christ has come, right, if the true Messiah, Jesus, and he was the true Messiah, if the true Christ has come, it is fitting now that people opposing him would come next. The true Christ has come, the Antichrists will come, and that's how we know that the true Christ has come and we are indeed in the last hour. Right? That they would come to seek to destroy his people, to seek to undo his work and his gospel. And in light of some other stuff, John says, I think it makes sense that he would he would say that. We know that since many Antichrists have come, we're in the last hour, because the world lies in Satan's power and the world is led by the devil, like we talked about last week. So it makes sense that Antichrist would rise up after the Christ. And furthermore, just a side note, this is just a personal opinion of mine. I'm not saying this is the best apologetic argument in the world, but from Christian to Christian here, um, <laughs> the sheer amount of opposition to the biblical Christ, I'm not talking about like the hippie Birkenstock-wearing Christ that we hear about in our culture a lot, but like the biblical Christ, the sheer amount of opposition to him, to me, bears witness that he must be the one sent by God. He must be the one sent by God. Since the world is so hostile to God and in open rebellion against God, it's fitting that the whole world rebels against this one Christ and not every other false religion that creeps up. There's a reason why Christ, the biblical Christ, is the most hated man in all of human history. Why people have rose up to oppose him because he is the one sent by God to redeem the people of God and Satan hates him. But anyway, what about Antichrist? Like, what is Antichrist? What is Antichrist? Now, notice I didn't say who is the Antichrist, but I said what is Antichrist. Uh, so, again, just briefly, John doesn't say the Antichrist. Now, I know if you guys are reading the NIV or the New Living Translation or a few other translations, honestly, that are more, are, are more thought for thought and less word for word, you're going to see the Antichrist in there. Uh, the NLT actually puts a capital A, like it's a proper person. You heard the Antichrist is coming. Um, but that's not actually what John wrote. Right? Like, he didn't put that article in front of Antichrist. He did not put the there. He said, you heard Antichrist is coming. And just so you don't think that I'm a nut or that the ESV is the only one that says this, the English Standard Version says Antichrist is coming. The New American Standard Bible says Antichrist, not the Antichrist. The Christian Standard Bible says Antichrist. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says Antichrist. And, since we're in Scioto County, the King James Version says Antichrist. It does not say the Antichrist. It says Antichrist. And if the King James was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. Amen? Um, yes, that, that was for you, Matt Witt. Um, so, so again, he says Antichrist is coming, not the Antichrist is coming. Uh, so, uh, an interesting thing to note. So you guys are going to be experts on Antichrist by the time that you guys leave here this evening. Because uh, we're going to look at almost every single passage that talks about Antichrist in the whole Bible. And some of you might be surprised to know, John is the only biblical author to actually use the word Antichrist. And he never uses it in Revelation. He uses all of his references to Antichrist in 1 John and 2 John. 1 John 2.18, 2.22, 4.3, and 2 John 7. Those are the only places you're going to find that word in the entire Bible. Right? So again, it's a what, not who. Okay, it's a what. Because in the context that John uses that word Antichrist, in every single context, he is showing a principle. He is showing a spirit. He's showing a concept, not one person. He's showing the spirit of Antichrist, the principle of Antichrist. 
And again, just to be honest, whenever he says an antichrist or the antichrist, because he does say that in a couple of passages, like, who is the antichrist? Anyone who denies the Father and the Son. Right? That's the antichrist. Whenever he says an antichrist or the antichrist, it is always very plain in those verses to see, it's plain to see that multiple people can have the trait that he is describing. Right? It's never one person. You can see multiple people can have that trait. So I want to be... Again, a lot of side notes before we can actually get into this and start cracking this open. Um, I want to be intellectually honest with you uh, and transparent with you. So some of you are saying he is denying a figure to come that is going to be the representation of all that opposes Christ. Not necessarily. I'm still figuring that one out, right? But just uh, for total transparency, Paul does talk about the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. And we're not going there. But he does talk about this figure who's going to claim all these things for himself that only God can claim. And it sounds like what generally people think of whenever they think of the Antichrist. Right? So John, or Paul does talk about the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. And John does talk about the beast in Revelation 13. But again, that's not the same thing that he's talking about in First and Second John. That's not the same thing he's talking about whenever he uses the word Antichrist. So... For total honesty's sake, just trying to be as transparent as I can with you guys, I'm still trying to figure out a lot of my eschatology, a lot of my end times views. Um, so there may indeed be a figure coming that is the full embodiment of all that opposes Jesus Christ and his church, but that is not what John is talking about in these passages in his letters. All right, so I just wanted to get that out of the way. If any of you disagree with me, I'll fight you in the parking lot after church. Um, bring it on, right? Um, <laughs> but let's give a definition for Antichrist. Okay, and uh, this is actually a definition from Joe Thorne, and I borrowed very heavily from him for this sermon, because uh, I love that guy. Um, but Antichrist, here's how I would define it. This is how he defined it. Any teaching or person that denies or distorts the saving supremacy of Jesus Christ. I'll read that one more time. Any teaching or person that denies or distorts the saving supremacy of Jesus Christ is an antichrist. All right? So two things before we get into the teaching of antichrist. The way that John describes it in his letters, antichrist is an in-house problem. It is a problem within the visible church. It's a problem among professing Christians. Right? In verse 18, he says, many have come. And then verse 19 says, and they have gone out from among you. Right? So they were once in the church. So Antichrist is a problem within the church. It's not, it's not out there. Antichrist is a problem with people who claim to be Christians, people who claim to be pastors, people who claim to be preachers and teachers and scholars and have PhDs and all that good stuff. And they do this. They oppose the saving supremacy of Jesus. This is an in-house problem amongst professing Christians. Right? So we wouldn't necessarily call a Muslim or an atheist an Antichrist. This is someone who's professing to know Jesus, but teaching all that opposes his gospel and his person and work. All right, so that's one. Two, this is not a future problem to look for. Right, this is a problem right now. John wrote this in the first century. This has been a problem then, and it continues today. It's continued through all of church history. And you can see this problem in Christian bookstores. Right? I love the dude that owns praises, but every time I go in there, I want to burn that place to the ground. Right? I'm serious. I mean, he'd get the insurance money. It'd probably work out for him, honestly. Um, right? But you can see this Antichrist junk in Christian bookstores. You can get on Facebook and see some stupid stuff getting posted on there. You can see it on television with junk like TBN. You can see it in a lot of really liberal seminaries that claim to be Christian seminaries. You can see it in all kinds of places. There's all kinds of Antichrist garbage out there. 
The reason why I bring all this up is because we must be on the lookout. We must indeed be on guard because we live in a time where people don't care about sound doctrine, like I said in the beginning. We live in a time where people could care less. I just love Jesus, right? But which Jesus? What did he do? Why do you love him? Why should I love him? Is he God? Is he not God, right? This is the, I just love Jesus and I don't care about doctrine. Is a really good way to make yourself very susceptible to Antichrist. It's a really good way to become Antichrist yourself. But again, the fact that people don't care about sound doctrine leaves them wide open and unprotected against Antichrists and all sort of false teachers. Um, but whenever John says Antichrist, I think he shows us some qualities that we're to look for. All right, there are certain qualities that make up Antichrist, and they're pretty narrow, I would argue. They're pretty narrow qualities. Now, there are many ways to be a false teacher, but here we're talking about specifically false teaching that gets categorized as Antichrist. Pretty narrow categories. First, I have three, and i got some sub-points, so this will be good. First thing, Antichrist denies Christ alone as Savior. Antichrist denies Christ alone as Savior. 1 John 2.22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son, right? I know he who denies uh, that Jesus is the Christ is not called Antichrist in that first sentence. He's called the liar, but the liar is parallel to Antichrist in the next sentence, okay? So who is the liar? He who denies. This is the Antichrist, he who denies, Right, so I think that we can say that the Antichrist denies that Jesus is the Christ. But what I want to focus on is the Christ. Because I think there's some things that we can say about that. That Jesus is the Christ. I think there's three things that we can, we can talk about whenever we're talking about denying Jesus as the Christ. And the first one, anyone who denies the exclusivity of Christ is an Antichrist. And what I mean by that is Jesus, like the church is as inclusive as, as humanly possible in the sense that anyone from any race any form of religion, any nationality, any, anything can become a Christian. Submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on Him. Follow Him. That, that you're, then you're a Christian. Right? We'll accept anyone. We're inclusive. It's, no one is barred because of their upbringing or anything like that. But Christ is exclusive. Christianity is exclusive. He is the Christ. And anyone who denies that He is the Christ, as in the only Savior, and that there is no other Savior, is an Antichrist. Any, anyone who would want to say that there are other ways to be made right with God apart from faith in Jesus Christ is an Antichrist. Jesus Christ claims exclusivity of salvation in Himself in John fourteen six, Jesus said to Him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. No one receives reconciliation or peace with God except through Me. But again, in opposition to Jesus being the Christ or the Savior, the Messiah, people claim that there are many paths to God. That all people know God. They just know Him in a different way. And that may be an attractive-sounding thought. Um, but it's just nonsense. Right? Because if that were the case, then Jesus Christ is a liar because He says He is the only way. And furthermore, His life, death, and resurrection was in vain and completely unnecessary. If there, are more, if there is more than one way apart from Christ to be saved, then Jesus died for no reason and He is a liar every time that He says, I am the only way to be saved. That is blasphemy. Utter blasphemy. That is the spirit of Antichrist. And you see this often with liberal Christians. I use that term 
if you're listening to the podcast, air quotes, with liberal Christians or scholars. Again, people say, we should accept all people and all religions as brothers. Right? We, we all really worship the same God. People who oppose this teaching, people who teach this, rather, that there's more than one way of salvation, they lead people astray, and they oppose Christ. Another way that you can deny Jesus as the Christ is to deny the work of Christ, right? the atoning work of Jesus. And I say that because if you deny Jesus as the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that's what that word Christ means, that he is the Messiah. Well, being the Messiah implies work to be done. It implies saving work on behalf of God's people to be done. And again, there are some liberals, uh, theological liberals, who would claim that the death of Jesus did nothing for anyone. Right? There are some theological liberals who actually deny his bodily resurrection. They say, essentially, I've read, I've read some articles and books, and they kind of make you laugh, because it's just so heinous and just ridiculous that people would even still claim to be a Christian. Uh, just call yourself an atheist or something else. Like, I would actually be more at peace with these people if they would just quit saying that they're Christians. Right? It's just ludicrous. They'll say things like, uh, that Jesus Christ's death was unfortunate and awful. It's a travesty. But it did nothing to save anybody because Jesus was just a mere moral example of how people should live and he was just a really good teacher. His death was a terrible thing that happened, shouldn't have happened, but it did nothing to save. And that goes completely against the apostolic teaching, right? Romans 3, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. God made Christ the propitiation for our sins. He set forth Christ as a sacrifice for sin on our behalf, that we might be saved by the blood of Christ, because Christ absorbed the very wrath of God in place of people, in place of all the people who would ever come to faith in him. To deny that Jesus Christ's death, life, death, and resurrection actually saves anybody is antichrist, blatantly antichrist. You're denying what he did for his people. And I just want to take a second here. We can disagree on atonement theories, Right? Hear me on this. Don't hear me wrong, right? You like theology nerds. I totally affirm penal substitution, right? That's what I just talked about. Christ suffering the wrath of God in our place. But we can like bicker and argue a little bit with each other on which atonement theory fits the gospel the best. And you're wrong if you don't believe it's penal substitution. Um, like we can disagree in some measure on the atonement theories. But if you don't believe that the death and resurrection and life, life, death and resurrection of Christ saves, you're an antichrist. It must save somehow. Even if we disagree on the specifics of how it did it, if you say that it didn't do that, you're an antichrist. And then thirdly, the way, another way that we can deny Christ alone as Savior is to deny the sufficiency of Christ as Savior. And this is the problem that we see the most inside of the county, I would argue. To deny the sufficiency of Christ as Savior. Scripture says that the Christ saves Jesus saves his people. Christ alone can save. Not us. Not us working together with God. Not anything to do with us and our work. Nothing to do with us. Nothing we do contributes to our salvation. Christ alone is a sufficient Savior. These are the kind of teachings that I'm referring to are the teachings that say Jesus plus something saves rather than Christ alone saves his people. This is a heresy addressed in Galatians. You should check it out. It's one of my favorite books in the New Testament. Surprise, surprise, right? Um, But these people that teach Jesus plus something, these are the people that you see that teach Jesus Christ plus baptism equals salvation, right? You see this in the Church of Christ where people claim that if you're not baptized, you're going to go to hell. 
Right? You see this in the Roman Catholic Church where you're told you must believe on Jesus and also be baptized and also take the sacraments and also do confession. If you sin too bad, you've got to do all this other rigmarole. This is ridiculousness that says you are effectively in charge of your salvation if you skip any of these steps in addition to faith in Christ that you're damned. These are the people who teach that faith in Christ plus speaking in tongues saves. Or faith in Christ plus believing in their prophet saves. Or Jesus Christ plus their extra revelation that they've received from God. Or some kind of works saves you. That is not faith in Christ. That is not Christ alone. That is not the Christ saves. That's the Christ plus my efforts saved. That's just a stupid attempt at self-salvation and it renders Christ's work ineffective. It says that Christ was not good enough. It proclaims that Jesus' person and work was not enough on its own to save and that is blasphemy. Christ is the sufficient Savior. And anyone who would seek to deny that is opposed to Christ and an antichrist. Point two, antichrist also denies the deity or divinity of Jesus, however you want to word that, denies the divinity of Christ, the deity of Christ. First John 2, 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So we see there that the Father and the Son are united. They are completely indivisible. But Antichrist seeks to divide the Father and the Son. Because Antichrist denies Jesus as the Son of God. As the true Son of God. So hear me on this. right? Many people will affirm that Jesus is the Son of God. right? So I'm not talking about mere words here. Many people will affirm Jesus is the Son of God. But then they go on to deny the clear biblical concept of Jesus as the divine, eternal Son of God. Feel me on that? They can say that they believe Jesus is the Son, but they will try to rend Him apart from His Father by rejecting the divine, eternal Son. John Calvin said this, It is not enough in words to confess that Jesus is the Christ, except He is acknowledged to be as such as the Father offers Him to us in the Gospel. It's not enough just to say Jesus is the Son. It's not enough to say Jesus is the Christ. You must accept Him as the Father presents Him in the Gospel, which is the divine, eternal Son of God. This is God's testimony about Jesus. Hebrews 1.3, the first part of it. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Right, let's, let's look at this for a second. I just want you guys to see. I know, I would argue, all of us here already believe in the deity of Christ, but I want you to see this. It says Jesus is the exact imprint of whose nature? Of God's nature. He's the exact imprint of the, to get nerdy for you, I'm probably mispronouncing this, the hypostasis of God. Hypostasis means essence. He's an exact imprint of the essence of God. So Jesus has the essence of God. What is the essence of God? If nothing else, Godhood. <laughs> right? Super simple, right? Just like the essence of me, if nothing else, is humanity. Because I'm a human. The essence of God would be divinity. With divinity comes eternality omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, right? All the omnis. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing, right? He's everywhere. That's what comes with having the essence of divinity. And we're told that Jesus is an exact imprint of that essence, which would mean He is uncreated, which would mean He has always been, that He has always existed as the Son of God. This is Jesus. 
truly God. So he read that statement that we read earlier. Truly God. He's worthy of our worship. Furthermore, why would the Bible tell us so much to worship Jesus if he was not indeed divine? That would be idolatry. Jesus is the proper recipient of our worship. The Godhead in all its fullness. And in denying the Son, Antichrist denies, again, like we just said, the eternality of Jesus, that he has always been the Son of God. And in denying that Christ has always been the Son and has always existed as the Son is a denial of the Trinity. And this one's probably going to get me in trouble. It's a denial of the Trinity. Whenever we say Trinity, and again, we hopefully can go through this more throughout this book, we're talking about the fact that God is one God in having one essence, Existing eternally in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Right? Distinguishable persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. They are distinct persons, and yet they all have the essence of divinity. Not three gods, but one God. Let's just call it, let's just call it what it is. It's a mystery. We can affirm truths about it, but none of us is really going to ever wrap our head fully around it. But we can affirm it. We can see what the Bible clearly teaches about it. But Antichrist deny that trinity. Antichrist deny the very nature of God by denying that God is Trinity. Right? But John tells us that Jesus has always been. He's always been beside the Father. And He's divine Himself even before taking on a body. John 1.1, 1, 1, you guys know this one. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God. The Word was with the Father. And the Word was God. The Word was divine. That's what John's getting at here. So to, not, to, deny, to deny the Trinity is to deny who God is at the core, which is to create an idol that cannot save. And the reason why I went on for a minute to talk about the deity of Christ and the Trinity is because there are three groups in our area. Two of them you're probably already aware of. One of them you may not know about. The Mormons, right, who believe that there are three gods. They're always wearing really nice shirts, right? And they're super nice, right? And they don't tell you their first name. They want to be called Elder. Um, but there's the Mormons who believe in three gods and reject uh, Christ's atonement as being satisfactory and a whole lot of other problems. We can talk about them. If they ever knock on your door, just shut the door or evangelize them. Um, the other one is the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ and reject the Trinity because they don't believe, again, in the deity of Christ. They don't believe in the deity of the Holy Spirit. And then there are the Oneness Pentecostals, and that's the one maybe you guys don't know about. Generally speaking, people around here call them apostolics. These are the, not to blanket statement all of them. These are the people that, generally speaking, the women don't cut their hair and they wear a lot of denim skirts. Um, and the dudes don't wear shorts ever. It's always long, long pants. They are Trinity-denying heretics. Just because someone tells you that they're a Christian and then you find out that they don't believe in the Trinity and that they go to one of these oneness Pentecostal slash apostolic churches, run. They're not a believer. Don't listen to them. Don't talk with them about doctrinal matters. Again, unless you're trying to evangelize them, and I would strongly encourage that if you're someone who actually knows your way around the Bible. But if not, run from them. Run from them. But those are three groups. A lot of, and by the way, just furthermore, the reason why I rode the one that's Pentecostal so hard so you guys don't think I'm being a jerk, I, have some, I know some people that are, and I talk with them on a fairly regular basis. Um, but there are so many churches around here that affirm them as brothers and sisters in the faith, and they deny the eternality of the Son. How you can do that is only because you don't know doctrine. It's frustrating. I just want to bring that up. But then lastly, and this isn't a problem that we see too much anymore, Antichrist denies the humanity of Christ. Second John, verse 7. 
For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. To deny that Christ came in the flesh makes you an antichrist. And this teaching, uh, John's fighting teaching in his own day, um, for certain, right? Uh, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us, right? He's addressing some false teaching going on in his day. And he's addressing a teaching uh, that essentially taught that all material things were bad. Therefore, God would never become a material being. So, Jesus never had a physical body, right? And he was never truly human. He just merely appeared to be human or appeared to have a body. And again, that's not much of an issue for us today, as far as I'm aware of, at least not in Scioto County. Uh, no one's really denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Uh, but just to square this one away, because old heresies do have a tendency to pop back up at some point in church history. Uh, the apostles taught this in contrast to the fact that people would say Christ did not come bodily. 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Or this, Galatians 4, 4 through 5. I love this one. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Again, so I just want to stress the point. Jesus was man. He was truly God, become truly man, and truly man in every regard that you can be truly human. Right? To redeem all of sinful humanity. When I say all, I mean the entire person that Christ is going to redeem. Jesus had to embody all that is human. He had to have a human mind. He had to have a human body. He had to have human everything in order to redeem every aspect of his people. So I know what you're wondering. Right? We have covered a lot of raw doctrine. Right? I've been throwing Bible verses at you. I've been explaining stuff about who Jesus is. Um, but let me tie all this together. Okay? I know what I've done. You're wondering why. why. Why does this matter? Let me tie this together so you can see exactly why this is important. And why John so strongly condemns teaching that opposes him on these points. Or opposes God on these points. And why we ought to oppose them just as strong. Hear me out. Jesus must be truly human to represent mankind before God. That's why the humanity of Christ is so important. He must be truly human to be the last Adam. He must be like the first Adam in every regard. Adam represented us in the covenant of works, and he failed miserably. He ate the fruit that he wasn't supposed to eat, and now sin has entered the world, and we are under bondage to sin unless Christ sets us free. And Christ sets us free because he was our new representative, where Adam represented us in sin, Christ represents us in righteousness. Christ must be fully human to represent humans in order to keep the law on our behalf, in order to die as our substitute. He must be man because only man can stand in the place of men. It's a matter of substitution. It's the matter of an appropriate representative. Anything less than that is going to be worthless for human beings. If he was partly God, then he could die in place of, or partly man, he could die in place of Demigods, I suppose. He had to be fully man in order to die in place of men. In order to live in place of men. Anything but that is worthless. And furthermore, Jesus must be fully God to take the wrath of God and come back from it. It takes God, consider this, it takes God to satisfy God. Can any mere human being satisfy God? No. God is only satisfied in himself because only God is perfect. Only God can be perfect. 
Jesus must be fully God in order to satisfy the demands of God because God is only satisfied in and of himself. Furthermore, Jesus must be fully God because only God in six hours on a cross could pay for an eternity of hell for untold numbers of sinners. If you're wondering how that works, it's the quality of the sacrifice. That God would suffer for one millisecond in place of sinners would be enough. The quality of the sacrifice was perfect. Christ must be God in order to atone. And lastly, Christ's work must be fully trusted in. And when I say fully trusted in, I mean alone trusted in. We must believe that Christ has saved us by His life, death, and resurrection, His obedience to the law on our behalf, His suffering on the cross on our behalf in place of sinners, and His resurrection from the dead. We must believe that only He saves, that His work alone on our behalf justifies us, reconciles us with God. Peter says this in Acts 4, 11, and 12, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So we see He must be fully man, or truly man. He must be truly God, and He must be trusted in alone as a sufficient Savior. This isn't an ivory tower theological issue. It's not. This is a boots-on-the-ground gospel issue. This is gospel doctrine. This is the only message that saves sinners. Any other teaching outside of what we've covered this evening preaches a false Christ and therefore a false gospel that is worthless to save anyone. We must have the true Christ if we're going to be saved. John is not being dramatic. This is, a vitally, this is vitally important stuff for us. Doctrine is intensely practical. It matters. I can't drive that home to you enough, especially with a lot of churches in our area and a lot of influence that you'll see. And I'm not just trying to bag on all churches in our area. I don't want you guys to get the wrong idea. But just the stuff you guys see on the internet, all, all this other stuff, people just trumpet forth over and over again. Doctrine doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But here's what we see in the Bible. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul's exhorting a pastor. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or and on the doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You guys, keep a close eye on your doctrine, because in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Because you must have sound doctrine. 2 John verse 9 says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. This stuff matters. We must abide in this teaching. We must continue believing these doctrines about Christ in order to abide in Him. And if we don't, we have no life in Him. Because we're rejecting Him as He truly is. This stuff is intensely practical. So for application, I, I, I want to hit these as quickly as I can. I want to warn you and I want to encourage you. Right, so the first thing, let me give you guys a negative statement. Do not, please hear me on this, Lord help us, because we have a spirit of this in our church sometimes. Do not make every doctrinal issue an antichrist issue. Yeah, I know some of you out there. Don't do that. Not every doctrinal issue is an antichrist issue. Arminianism, right? Right? The, the, what, essentially what the Methodists teach in the Free Will Baptists, right? that you choose God and that you can lose your salvation and all that stuff, that's not an antichrist issue. 
Right? Charismaticism. People believing you can speak in tongues and that the Holy Spirit can make you do all kinds of goofy things. That's not an antichrist issue. Ordaining women to the pastorate. That is not an antichrist issue. We could go on and on and on and on. Now, I want to be clear. I disagree with all three of those positions super hard, and I'll probably argue with you over it, and we'll have a good long talk. Um, but those aren't antichrist topics. People who preach the true Christ that we've talked about, people who preach salvation in Him alone, by His work alone, that's our family. Regardless of everything else that we may disagree on, those people are our family. Don't make everything into an antichrist discussion. Don't be so quick to denounce someone as an, as an opponent of Christ and His gospel just because you disagree on a secondary, open-handed, doctrinal issue. Don't be that guy. I was that guy for a long time. It does not reflect well on the church. It's supposed to love one another and make allowance for one another's faults and poor theology at times. But again, I've got to say this. There are other false teachers, though. Right? We narrowly have covered Antichrist. There are people that teach that sin is okay, that good is evil and that evil is good, that Scripture has errors in it. There are many other kinds of false teaching that lead people away from Christ and lead them to hell, and we should condemn them. But we keep unity with our true family. Anyone who preaches the true Christ and salvation by him and his work alone. Right? So that's one. Don't make everything an antichrist issue. Two, please hear me on this. Guard yourselves. I'm, I'm not being dramatic here. Uh, guard yourselves. Be cautious. Not everyone who claims to preach or talks about Jesus is from God. Not everyone who says they're a preacher of the gospel is a preacher of the gospel. Not everyone who says that they write Christian books actually knows the Christ that they claim to write about. Not everyone who has a Ph.D. in theology believes anything that they were taught. Guard your reading, right? Actually, before, before I go on to the rest of this, let me just tell you, I'm not saying guard your theology and guard your doctrine because I think that I'm right and everyone else is wrong. I mean, obviously I do. I wouldn't say the stuff that I say. Um, but this is an issue of, obviously, dude, truth is exclusive. If I'm right, everyone else has to be wrong, and I think that I'm right. So, um, <laughs> I'm not up here saying I want you guys to believe this stuff because I'm right and they're wrong. This is a pride issue for me. Whenever I say guard yourself, I know that I'm younger than quite a few of you. If I look out at the members here as if you're my kids. And I get really nervous whenever I see you guys reading books by authors that I've never heard of or authors that I know are heretics. I get really nervous whenever I see or hear about you guys listening to certain teachers that aren't exactly kosher. Whenever I hear you guys visiting churches that I either I don't know anything about or um, I know are pretty muddy with the gospel and certain doctrinal issues and issues on repentance, I get nervous. Like, I have to imagine this is similar to what it's like being a parent. And I love you guys. I want you guys to guard yourselves. And I can't obviously be there with you every moment to hold your hand, so I want you to be cautious with what you read, who you read. I want you to be cautious with the sermons you'll listen to, the churches you'll visit, the podcasts you'll listen to. All right? And if you're not sure about something or something seems weird to you or something smells wrong, Right? Come talk to me or Stephen. We're your pastors. God has given us to you guys as a tool for you to help shepherd you and help you and to fight off wolves when necessary, and we will do so when we must. All right? But Paul said this, so just be careful and never let your guard down. Acts 20, 
Verse 29 through 31. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Be alert. There will be people who rise from among you, hopefully not here among us at Revolution Church, but among people professing to know Christ, who will try to draw you away from Jesus. Be alert. It was a problem then. It's a problem now. Please, please be on guard. And then lastly, I want to encourage you with this. <laughs> and I know this sermon has been largely negative. Uh, but rejoice. Seriously, rejoice is my favorite exhortation to give you guys. Rejoice in the fact that you do know Christ. You know the true Christ. You know the one who saves. And rejoice in why you have come to know the true Christ. Why you reject the false Christs that, that, that false teachers and antichrists would try to show you. You believe in Christ. Let's, Matthew 16, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Rejoice in that. If you believe in the true Christ, the one who suffers the wrath of God in place of his people, the God-man, the eternal one, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of the dead, the Messiah, the promised one, the Holy One of Israel, if you trust in Him, rejoice because God has revealed that Christ to you. Flesh and blood can reveal a false Christ to you, but only God can reveal that Christ to you. Rejoice in that. God revealed Him to you in order to save you. You are not antichrists. You are disciples and the beloved bride of the only Christ. Rejoice in that. I'll leave you guys with Jude's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for revealing the only Christ to us the true Christ, the one that you promised your people. Thank you for the warnings that you give us in your word. God, may we heed them. May we be on the lookout for false teachers without becoming heresy hunters that, that spend all of our day, every day, just trying to denounce somebody. But God, help us to spot damning error when we see it and to call it out for what it is, and to defend the truth, and always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. God, thank you so much for sending Christ to us, and revealing him to us. Help us to be on guard, to keep unity with those who are actually our brothers and sisters, and to rejoice always in that we have come to know you 